Well, good morning again, and uh, if I haven't met you yet, or if you're new, my name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I personally want to welcome you to Redeemer. Regardless if, if you're joining us from a position of kind of being on the struggle bus, or if you feel like you're just crushing it at life, if you're joining us because you it, from a place of uh, joy or a place of sorrow, from a place of belief or a, a place of doubt, really regardless of wherever you find yourself this morning, we're really thankful that you've chosen to hang out with us in this kind of weird capacity. So again, I just want to welcome you to Redeemer. Well, uh, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we do that is we gather together each week to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in His great love for us. And then we get together individually and in small groups in different ways throughout the week so that we might remind one another of His great love for us. And as we rest and as we remind, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that together we might reflect His love for us. Because we, we dream of seeing our city, we dream of seeing lives, we dream of seeing relationships flourish flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And in order to help us do that this summer, what we're doing is we're looking at the parables that Jesus told. And parables are a teaching device, little small stories that Jesus would tell so that we would learn about who God is and how we can connect with Him. And we've been saying and we've been seeing and discovering that these parables are designed to disrupt us, to uh, aggravate us, to offend our sensibilities. And before, you know, to set up the parable that was just read, I thought it would be appropriate to begin by talking about The Office. I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office, but in season five, Dunder Mifflin gets a new, a new boss, a temporary boss, a man named Charles Minor. And one afternoon, Charles Minor goes up to one of his employees named Jim Halpert and leans over and says, uh, I need a rundown of your clients. Can you get that to me soon? And Jim says, sure, yes. And Jim has no idea what a rundown is, but he's too afraid to admit to his new boss who he's trying to impress I don't know what a rundown is. So he's trying to figure out what is this assignment that I've been tasked to do. And so he starts asking a couple questions of the boss, hoping that maybe he'll get some clues and he gets nothing. So later on in the episode, he goes over to one of the accountants named Oscar and he's, he leans over, he goes, hey, do you, know what, do you know what a rundown is? And Oscar says, no, why don't you just ask the boss what he's looking for. And Jim says, I, I can't do that. It's been hours since he asked me to do it. And Oscar's like, what have you been doing all day? And so later on, Jim eventually goes back to the boss and, and has one last attempt to try to figure out what this thing is. And so he says, hey, can you maybe give me a sample of another rundown just so I can kind of compare the format? And the, the boss just says, you know, just keep it simple. So Jim's like, okay. So he's got, he has no clue what this is, eventually comes up with something. At the end of the episode, he doesn't even know what a rundown is, but he hands over this sheet of paper. The boss doesn't even look at it and says, okay, now that you've done this rundown, I want you to fax it to your distribution list. And Jim now has this other problem. I don't know what a distribution list is. And that's kind of how the episode ends with this particular story. Now, 
The reason I bring that up is because regardless of where you are spiritually, my guess is for a lot of us, we've, we've resonated with that sense of, I don't know what God is looking for. It seems like he wants us to do a lot of stuff. He's got this expectation with a lot of people. As he's, as he's looking over the edge of you know, the human race, what is he looking for? What does he want to see? And Jesus is pretty explicit in this passage. He just tells you straight up, the thing that God is looking for is repentance. Which my guess is if you've been around the church or if you've been around Christianity in even kind of a cursory way, my guess is that would, that's a surprising answer because we would probably expect the thing that God's looking for is love. He, he's, he wants to see love in, in, in people. Or if you're from certain traditions, you might expect Jesus to say, God is looking for discipline. He wants you to be more disciplined. He wants more rhythms. He wants more accountability in your life. And God doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say love. He doesn't say discipline. He doesn't say holiness. He doesn't say doing justice. He doesn't say worship. He doesn't say any of this stuff. He says something that's kind of unexpected. He says the thing that he's looking for in his people is repentance. Now, that immediately raises three questions. Number one, okay, what is that? What is repentance? Uh, number two, why is that so important? Why is that the thing that Jesus is looking for? And then three, how do you get it? What is it? Why is it so important? How do you get it? All of it right here in this passage. So let's take a look at it. Number one, what is that? What is repentance? Well, you see in verse three and five, he uses that word, repent. And without getting into all the technicalities, that Greek word, metanoia, repent, essentially just means changing directions. It means turning. So repentance is essentially you going one way of life, believing this way, going down this path, and you kind of waking up and realizing, this is really dumb. This is really wrong. This is really harmful. And you change directions. You turn. That's what repentance is in a nutshell. But okay, we got to get a little bit more specific because what does Jesus want us to turn from and what does he want us to turn to? Well, to answer that question, uh, let me tell you this. Uh, as many of you know, my wife and I uh, used to be in college ministry. And a number of years ago, I remember sitting down with a student over coffee and he came to me because he was kind of at a low point and I didn't know the student that well. He had kind of been around our ministry a little bit, but he, he, he had... He was really ashamed of the choices that he had been making. He had gone to college and done the typical go to college and kind of go crazy thing. Drugs, alcohol, sex, all of that. And he'd hit this low point and he wanted to meet with a pastor and he sits down with me and he says, hey, I've, I've, I really need to clean up my life. I wanna be a better person. I've, I've done this or that and I, I wanna do better. I, need to, I wanna be a better person. Can you help me? And I remember looking at him and saying, no, I, I can't. Um, I'm not really interested in you going from a bad version of you to a good version of you. In fact, I don't think Jesus is really interested in you going from a bad version of you to just being a better person. Uh, you going from bad you to good you does nothing for you, spiritually speaking. And we had a great conversation about it. But I bring that up because when we hear the word repent, we hear the Bible say repent or Jesus say repent, we intuitively think that's what the Bible's telling us to do. Stop being bad and start being good. 
you've been, you've been breaking all the rules. Shame on you. Stop that. Now start keeping all the rules. Stop drinking and cussing and smoking and sleeping around. And now start reading the Bible and going to church and caring about other people. Go from bad you to good you. And you have to hear me say, that's not repentance. That's not Christian. That's not Christianity. I think one of the reasons why so many people get burned out from the church and just get burned by religion is because they make that mistake of thinking that's what biblical repentance is. And the way that it works is like this, is you begin with guilt, kind of like my friend at the coffee shop. You begin with guilt and you feel bad about yourself and you begin to think, man, I've really messed up and, and, and so I, I want to be better. And so you start piling on activities and resolutions and things that you want to implement in your life and you give being better the old college try and then you go and do it and you can do it for a little bit, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, depending on how, you know, strong of a, you know, will you have. But eventually you can't sustain that long term and, and, and you, be, you begin to buckle under the pressure, you begin to buckle under the weight of I'm not living up, I'm not living up to these resolutions, I, the, the pressure, the guilt, the, the feeling I've got to be perfect and you eventually just get worn out and you go right back to your old habits, the old patterns. It doesn't work and, and it just feels miserable, it doesn't feel authentic and so many people think that's what Christianity is. It's just this call and this invitation to be better. And so many of us try to just go and be better, and then we get exhausted, and we realize it's not working, and we leave, and we didn't think it worked for us. That's not repentance. What does Jesus want us to turn from? The Bible, when the Bible talks about repentance, the Bible wants you to turn from anything that you are trusting in to provide you with meaning and significance, identity, joy, other than God, anything. It could be stereotypically bad things like substance abuse or sexual promiscuity, but it could also be stereotypically good things like being a good parent or building your identity on the fact that you're the right kind of person, drawing all the joy in your life that, that you go to the right kind of church whatever. It's turning from anything, good or bad, that you're trusting in to provide you with meaning and security and identity and significance, and you turn to not shame, not guilt, not more resolutions, not, not trying harder. You turn to Jesus. Repentance is basically you just reenacting the parable of the prodigal son. It's you just leaving whatever you were trusting in and coming home, coming into the arms of the Father. So that's, that's what repentance is. It's turning from whatever you are, you are looking to for meaning and purpose and identity and turning to Jesus. So, okay, if that's what it is, why is that such a big deal? Why is that so important? Why is that the thing that Jesus is looking for? Okay, well, to get into that, we gotta go a little deeper into this passage. So let's just start at the top and kind of work our way through. Verse one, some people come up to Jesus and they pass along this story that was kind of breaking news. The story was Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor over this region of where Israel was, he had sent some soldiers to go into the temple and essentially murder some people that were offering their sacrifices at the altar. So 
the blood of the people that was murdered starts to mingle in and mix with the blood of the animals that they were presenting at, at church, essentially. Very gruesome, very graphic story. And they, they bring this story up to Jesus and ask him the question, was this God's judgment on these people? Were, were these people worse sinners than everyone else? Is this why this horrible thing happened to them? Which is, you know, it's a fair question. In fact, you, you hear religious people um, make that claim a lot. Whenever there's a big crisis, 9-11, um, Katrina, even COVID, uh, you will sometimes hear religious people say, this was God's judgment on our sin, on our immorality. And my guess is you, you, you may even feel this at a personal level as well. When something bad happens uh, in your own life, there's a crisis or you lose your job or you, you get injured, you get sick, whatever. If something bad happens, it's easy to begin to think, was this God punishing me? Was this God making me pay for something wrong that I've done? So that's their question. There's this horrible story in the news. They bring it to Jesus. They say, was this God punishing them for their sin? And they throw out that question. And this question, if you think about it, it, it has two massive assumptions behind it, an assumption about who God is, an assumption about who they, the questioners, are. So what are those? The, the assumption about God is this that God relates to people in, in a form of like tit-for-tat karma, that he's, he's just standing there. He's, he's got his finger hovering over the nuke button, and he's just waiting for you to screw up so he can push the button and drop some pain into your life. That's the, that's the image of God, that he, he has zero grace. And then what's the assumption about them? They're looking around and saying, okay, if bad things are happening to bad people, so if good things are happening to me. I'm not experiencing bad things. Therefore, I must be pretty good. I can look at my circumstances and conclude I'm the, we're the right kind of people here. So that's their question. But behind that question are two assumptions. God is graceless. He is without grace and we are good. So how does Jesus respond? It's brilliant. Look at his response in verse two. He says, okay, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then in verse 4, he brings up this other well-known story. There was, a, there was a construction site accident where 18 people had been killed in this this accident. And so he brings that up in verse four. He says, okay, think about this. What about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay. You see how brilliant this is? This is so fascinating. He, he's dismantling both of their assumptions. Because on the one hand, he's saying, no, God does not treat you according to how your sins deserve. He's unbelievably gracious. He's not standing up there hovering over a nuke button. He, he, he is, he is, he's not punishing these people because they sinned more. He's emphatic. He says it twice, no. But then on the other hand, he says, and you are quite mistaken about yourself. You're not good. 
you need to repent. You need to repent. You're way more flawed and broken than you think you are. In other words, he is saying, God is gracious and you are not good. And then as Jesus is known to do, he tells a story. In verse six, he says, there's this man who has a fig tree in his yard and he goes out every single day looking for fruit. Every day, over and over, for three years, he's looking for fruit on it. This man is so patient, so <laughs> so kind towards this pitiful little tree that's not producing any fruit. Three years of waiting for fruit, he keeps holding out. He could have easily have gotten rid of this thing, easily chopped it down, but he doesn't. Which shows you, in this particular parable, um, God is looking for the fruit of repentance. And he is unbelievably patient and gracious. And we're the trees. We're the ones that are, something is severely flawed in us. Something is broken. This tree is either dead or something is very wrong with it. Now, put all that together. Here's why repentance is so important. When we repent, when we turn from whatever we're finding life in other than God, and we turn to Jesus, we are actually living in sync with reality. Repentance is you embodying and believing, I'm not good, and God is so gracious. Repentance is actually what makes you sane. Um, when someone is insane, they are out of touch with reality. Repentance makes you sane because it brings you in line with the way that the world actually is, that we're way more flawed than we think we are, and God is way more gracious and patient and kind with us than we assume he is. Another way to put it, when you repent, you are living out a story that you have a great need for a savior and you have a great savior for your need at the same time. Now, here's why this is so incredibly important. Let's think about this practically, and we can just use me as an example. What would one day of my life look like if repentance was a regular part of it? Well, let's just walk through my day. Let's say I wake up and I fix my kids breakfast in the morning, usually waffles and some sausage. And as I'm fixing breakfast for them, let's say that they're doing something and they're being loud or they're being needy and I lose my temper with them and I get angry, which has never happened actually in real life before. But for the sake of the story, let's just say I lose my temper with them and I get frustrated with them and then I catch myself and I realize, oh, I, I feel like they're being too needy, but I need to repent of my anger. I need to repent of the fact that I just need them to kind of get with my program, my schedule for the way that life is. And I, and I, I turn from those things and I rest in the reality that God is gracious and he forgives me. So then I leave home and I go and, and hang out with somebody over coffee and they tell me a story about their life that's heartbreaking and hard and rather than just weeping with them and listening to them and praying with them, I, I go into fix-it mode and I come up with all these plans and strategies on things they need to change and things they need to think through and then I, I, I catch myself and I, I repent of my lack of empathy, I repent of my need to control things, and, and, I, and I return to Jesus and I rest in the reality of his grace for me and that he forgives me. Then I leave that coffee appointment and I go back to my office and I work extra hard on the sermon because uh, not so much because I love God and I love my neighbor because I'm just driven by a fear of failure. I don't wanna stand up in front of a group of people, I just wanna stand in front of a camera and look like an idiot in front of a bunch of people. I got, this has got to be good. And so there's this fear in me that drives me. And so I catch myself and uh, I repent of my codependency. 
I repent of my, my, my lack of faith and, and I return to Jesus and I, and I rest in the reality of his grace and his forgiveness for me. And this is not even before lunch yet. I haven't even repented yet of my pride or my lust or my greed or my apathy or my laziness or my entitlement, on and on and on. But, but here's my point. If you go through one day of repentance, just one day, what, what begins to happen to you? At the end of one day, you begin to see your, your, your sin, your flaws, they're way bigger than you thought they were. And you begin to see God's grace is way, way bigger than I thought it, it was. At the end of one day, you're humbled because of your sin and you're, you're affirmed because of his love for you. Now, what if you took one day and you strung day after day after day of repentance together? What if you, what if you strung out a whole life of repentance? What would happen? Because you are becoming more and more honest about your own sin, you, you, you are becoming uh, approachable. That makes you self-aware. That makes you, um, uh, where, where you don't take yourself so seriously, you're able to laugh at yourself. You find yourself freer to apologize more. You find yourself saying, I'm sorry, a lot more. You find yourself becoming less defensive. You become more empathetic towards other people that are struggling. And because you, you, are, you are pivoting around God's love and his grace and his kindness to you over and over, uh, it's making you more bold, it's making you more stable, it's making you more secure, more obedient, more joyful, more grateful. This is, this is why repentance is so important because repentance is the thing that humbles you. Repentance is the thing that infuses you with joy and with worship. Re repentance is the thing that makes you kind and tender and gentle with people. I think maybe the reason why the church in America doesn't feel authentic or empathetic or kind is maybe because the church in America hasn't been doing a lot of repenting. Jesus is looking for the fruit of repentance and he calls us and he invites us to repent. It's that important to him. So final question. How do we get it then? If that's what it is, if that's why it's so important, then how do you get it? Because if you're the dead tree that's not producing the fruit, how do you just make yourself start producing the fruit? How, how do you get it? Well, to get into that, we gotta see the end of the story. There's this gardener that comes up and engages with the, the vineyard owner. And here's what their dialogue looks like. I'll just read verse eight. It says, he answered him, sir, let it alone. You know, essentially, leave, leave, the, leave the plant alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So, okay, the gardener in the story does two things. The first thing he does is he says, okay, leave it alone for another year. He's, he's, he's buying more time. The, the owner of this vineyard or the, of this plant has waited three years for fruit. He has every right to get rid of this thing. Something's wrong with it. It's not working. Let's get rid of it. It's taking up space. But he agrees, okay, we'll give it more time. I, I, want, I want this fruit of repentance to show up so badly. Let's give it another year. Don't you see God's kindness in this story? He, 
you will never turn from whatever you're deriving life from and turn to Jesus unless you find Jesus to be better. And the only way that you're going to find Jesus better than the other things that you're deriving life and meaning and identity from is that you have to see the overwhelming ocean of kindness and love that he has. That's the only way. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. You will never repent unless you're first convinced of God's kindness. I mean, just think this through. Let's say that um, you have a boss that is very demanding, very strict. They they are like, uh, uh, you know, high expectations, drill sergeant, um, uh, no-nonsense kind of a person. And let's just say that one day you mess up. You screw up in some massive way that's, that's, that's big enough to where you can't hide it, you can't cover it up. And so as you think about engaging your boss with your screw up, my guess is every instinct in you is, to, is going to want to minimize your involvement. Maybe you start blaming other people for the mishap. Uh, maybe you don't share all the details of the story of the mistake. Maybe you edit it in, in a certain way so that you look a little bit better than you actually do than you actually were, and why? Why are you covering up? Why are you lying? Why are you hiding? Why are you shaving the truth? It's because (laughs) your boss is mean. You're not convinced of his kindness. You're not convinced of his grace. If, here's the point, if you see God as a mean boss, as a drill sergeant, as somebody that's waiting with his finger over the button, that's just going to bring the pain into your life the moment you mess up, you will never repent. Why? Why would you? But Jesus tells you the story. To first, the first thing he wants you to see is the overwhelming kindness of God. He has every right to tear this tree out, and he doesn't. He says, let's give it more time. I want to see this fruit so bad. Let's give it more time. Overwhelming patience and kindness, and it's only when you see his kindness and his tenderness, only then will you begin to repent. Which, okay, what's the second thing that the gardener does? The second thing that the gardener does is in verse eight. He says, I'm gonna dig around it and I'm gonna put on manure. Now manure is obviously fertilizer. It's um, animal waste, it's gross, it smells bad. Nobody wants to be around it. It's this nasty dead stuff. And Jesus tells the story and says, okay, the gardener's gonna take this dead stuff and put it on the roots of this dead plant and that's what's gonna bring about life. Jesus says, I'm going to take dead stuff and put it on them so it brings about life in them, which is just so, it's such a Jesus thing to do. This is what he does. I mean, think about it like this. The tree in the story is about to receive violence and judgment. I mean, the owner says, chop this thing down. Let's get rid of this thing. And yet there's this somebody that intervenes and comes in and says, leave it alone. Let's, let's leave it alone. Let's suspend judgment temporarily. And you, you, you might know that in just a few chapters from Luke chapter 13, where this story is found, Jesus is about to receive violence on a tree. He's about to be cut down and he calls out for God's help. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And there is no voice that speaks back and says, leave him alone. And so Jesus undergoes the violence of judgment and he gets cut down. He 
perishes. He becomes sin for us. And he gets thrown out of the city on a trash heap. He becomes garbage. He becomes manure. And in God's kindness, what he does is he takes that work of Jesus, the very death of Jesus, and he applies it to the death of our own souls. And that's what brings about life. He does it all. We do nothing. We contribute nothing. And what he does is he applies the very death of Jesus to us in order to bring about life. So, so how do you get it? How do you get repentance? Here's how you get it. You get repentance when you experience the kindness of God in the gospel of grace. Repentance as a fruit starts to pop up when you begin to personally see and experience the kindness of God as it is displayed in the gospel of grace. I'll end with this. One last thought. Here's how one author described uh, this particular parable. He put it like this. Talking about God, he says, he does everything. I do nothing. I just trust him. It's a nifty arrangement. And for a deadbeat like me, it's the only one that can possibly work. If you know yourself to be a deadbeat, if you know yourself to be someone incapable of producing this in yourself, the only thing you can do is to see the kindness and trust it. See the kindness of God and then trust him. And the good news is, that's enough. And that's what actually begins to produce the fruit of repentance in you. Seeing and experiencing the kindness of God displayed in the gospel of grace. Amen. Let me pray. Father, would you be kind to give us eyes to see that we're much more flawed and broken and sinful than we thought we were, and you're way more gracious than we imagined. I pray that that would compel our hearts, would that convince our hearts to finally start coming clean and to start coming home. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.